It is my great joy to invite you to open your copy of God's perfect and precious word to Matthew chapter 2. The Gospel of Matthew chapter 2. We're going to be looking together this morning at Matthew 2 beginning in verse 13 down through verse 23. I invite you to stand in reverence to the reading of the perfect word of our sovereign God. And then I'll pray for mercy as we study his perfect and precious word together. Matthew chapter 2, beginning in verse 13. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. This was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died... Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose, and he took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled. He shall be called a Nazarene. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, I pray, Lord, that you would teach us today as we look into your word where true peace can be found. Lord, help us to see the reality of the warfare that we live in the midst of. But help us to look to You. Help us to trust You. Help us to see the way You are guiding and orchestrating history for Your glory and the good of Your people. Oh, Lord. Help us to apply the truth of your word to our lives by applying our lives to this story. We pray it in the name of the Christ. Amen. may be seated. We live in a world of corrupt leadership, factions, division, everyone grasping for power. And a lot of the grasping for power is self-referential, it's selfish, it's power for power's sake in an attempt to control people. Government leadership is often a selfish mess, and those at the highest echelons of government are often involved in 
corruption and in things that are usurping the rights of people and keeping them from being able to live their life as they see fit. There is even government-approved murder of babies, government-sanctioned death of the smallest and most innocent among us. And there are some who are fleeing persecution as refugees, looking for safety in a new land, hoping that their children aren't killed in the midst of persecution and battle. That sounds familiar, and it should. That's the context that we're looking at and the situation in the biblical narrative surrounding the birth of Jesus. And oh yeah, there are some parallels to our lives right now as well. I want you to see that. There's a tendency to think, oh man, we've got it bad. It's worse than it's ever been. It's a terrible time to be alive. And yet we look into our Bible and we see the very environment that Jesus came to us and the environment is very similar to what we are facing today. And the answer is still the same. The reason the birth of Jesus is highlighted in the midst of this difficult cultural situation is because Christmas was the answer to that situation, and Christmas is still the answer. The incarnation of Christ comes in the midst of a very dark, dark time. People are facing persecution and difficulty all around. And then all of a sudden the text highlights the birth of a particular child in the most humble of circumstances. And for those who know their Bibles very well, they know that at the very beginning of their Bibles, this child was promised. A seed born of woman who would crush the head of the serpent. This is the warfare of Christmas. See, when we think about Christmas, we are always in danger of just wrapping it in our own cultural sentimentality and not seeing the place that it really fits in the biblical narrative. It's a part of the battle line of Scripture, the warfare between the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of God's Son, the kingdom of God. Christmas. Warfare. All of the Gospels present the coming of Christ as a birth of a new creation, as the promise being fulfilled. In in the Gospel of Matthew, it talks about the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And then it unfolds that genealogy. The, the word translated genealogy is similar to the word Genesis, the beginning. It is a new Genesis. It's a new beginning. And just like we see in Genesis, genealogies, we see a genealogy presented here. Jesus comes to usher in a new creation, a new kingdom, a new people that ultimately will be a new heaven and a new earth. But the key to that is this child born of woman who will crush the head of the serpent. The birth of Christ, the virgin birth of Christ, is portrayed here as the answer. And what the warfare of Christmas teaches us is that we must be constantly 
attentive and obedient to the sovereign king of history. And it's a struggle. It's always a struggle. The struggle is between living our lives based on simply what we see around us or living our lives based on what God has said. It's a problem that goes back to the very beginning. God had said you can eat from all of the garden except a particular tree. But when they stood in the garden, they saw that tree. And there was a voice who says, it will be better if you eat of that tree. Do I live based on what God has said? Does he frame the world for me? Or do I live based on what I see? When we live based on what we see, we live as though we are Lord. We are self-referential. That's the battleground. The battle that we all live in. And yet every word of the Bible tells us that there is a sovereign king of history and it's not us. It's the Lord God Almighty. This is why it's so important that we don't turn the Christmas narrative into mere sentimentality. And the truth is, often we prefer sentimentality. Sentimentality is wanting convictions you don't have to suffer for. Sentimentality is the neat, clean, happy ending. We decide what the happy ending should be, and we want to conform reality to our preconceived idea of mentality. We are still in control. But when we live listening to God, God often leads us places that are difficult, that are dangerous. And obeying Him means that there are consequences for the things that we believe. And they aren't always easy. And they aren't always pretty. We must look at this story and not see our neat, little, clean, beautiful nativity scenes. But we must see it for what it really is. Corruption. Bloodshed. Babies' skulls crushed. Leaders who care only for themselves. And in the midst of it, there is a baby named Jesus who is the light of the world, who is the one who brings peace. Think with me for a moment this morning about Joseph. Joseph's situation is anything but sentimental. God is doing everything but leading Joseph down through a path to make his life more easy and more comfortable. It's not a neat little happy ending. When we think about Joseph's life, look at uh, chapter 1, verse 20. But, but as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph... Son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Why is he telling him not to fear? Because he is marrying a woman 
who is having a child who is not his. And everybody is going to conclude that he's married to a harlot. But do it anyway, Joseph. People are going to mock you. People are going to ridicule you. People are going to say that you are a person who is a rebel. Your wife is scandalous. She's trash. Marry her anyway. This is what God is doing. You have the right to stone her if you want to. But do not do it. Marry her anyway. And then we look in the account in the verses that we're considering today, and we see verse 13 and 14. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. Oh yeah, Joseph, the woman that you are marrying who has a child that's not yours, it's the Holy Spirit's, but everybody else thinks it's another man's. That woman and that child, Herod, the ruler, the king, is going to be looking for that child. And what he wants to do is he wants to crush your child's skull. He wants your baby dead. So pack your bags. You're about to be a refugee and flee to Egypt. That's not sentimental. It's very difficult. This is not the way getting married is supposed to be. This is not the way it's supposed to be when you have a baby. But this is the way it is. This is to whom the Christ comes. And for anybody who knows their Bibles well at all, go to Egypt so there is not infanticide. Go to Egypt so the child will not be killed. That's not the first time that's happened. Everything in this context is picking back up on the story of Moses. Moses, who escaped persecution in Egypt. Moses, ultimately the one who led his people out of Egypt. There is a new Moses. And there is a new Israel that's being protected and led out of bondage. Look at verse 20 of chapter 2. Well, I'll pick up at verse 19. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. Now now it's again, okay? You marry a woman who has a child who's not yours. The scandalous situation, everyone's talking about you. Oh yeah, and the king wants to kill your baby, so go to Egypt as a refugee. Live in another country, hoping that that country takes you in and accepts you. And okay, now go back to Egypt. Oh, the situation's still dangerous, but trust me. 
God keeps showing up, and here he's showing up in dreams because the text wants to highlight for us that God's in control of all of this in the midst of what seems like chaos. What seems like absolute cultural chaos, God is narrating and moving his people around so that his purposes ultimately unfold. Archelaus is on the throne after Herod's dead. That's Herod's son. He didn't rule very long. He was thrown out and Herod Antipas ruled, but Archelaus was even more bloodthirsty than his father. And yet he's being told to go back, move toward danger once again. In all of these encounters, one thing that we see with Joseph is he obeyed. In chapter 1, verse 24, it says, He did, he took the child and his wife, and he knew her not until she had given birth. Now, one of the things the text does is normally at this time you would say the wife and the child, but it inverts it because it's showing us that Jesus is the highlight of this narrative. But okay, Joseph takes the child and his wife, and he goes to Egypt, just like he's told. Joseph takes the child, uh, go, takes uh, Mary as his wife, just like, he, just like he's told. He's not afraid. In chapter 2, verse 14, he rose, he took the child and his wife, and he departed. In chapter 2, verse 21, he rose, he took the child, and they went back to the land of Israel. He is obedient. He just listens to what God tells him to do. Now understand this. If he's just living based on what he can see in the moment, he would not do any of this. There is that tension between what I see in the present and what God has said and what God promises. That's the battle that we're all in. Which will we live based upon? Because God keeps moving his people into situations that we would never move without him. As I read this text and as I see Jesus and his family fleeing to Egypt, I was thinking about when we were recently in Israel and we were on the Lebanon border. It was telling us about people who were fleeing violence all around the world. And some of the people are in such bad physical condition and they can't get medical attention because of the warfare going on in the surrounding areas. So there is a mountain that leads down to a fence that Israel has as a barrier. And if something touches that fence, they go check it out to see what it is. It's a detection system. And some of these people are so desperate that they take their loved ones who have terrible physical conditions, they roll them up in carpets, push them down the mountain, hoping that they will survive and that the carpet will hit the fence so the Israeli troops will come check it out and the Israeli troops will take that person to Israel for medical care. Folks, that's desperation. That is living in a world of violence and chaos. How do we go on in a world like that? Well, God is doing everything He can in the text 
this portion and the rest of the Bible to say, look at how ultimately I'm in control. Trust me. I am Lord. I am sovereign. Trust me. Faith is believing that in the midst of the pain and difficulty of the world. Let me give you just a few examples. In chapter 1, verse 23... When the angel of the Lord comes to Joseph, tells him that she will bear a son, you will name him Jesus, he will save his people from their sins. And it says that all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. And it quotes Isaiah seven fourteen in verse 23 of chapter 1. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now, if we go back to Isaiah 7, we see, King, we see King Ahaz is worried about a military victory. And so he asks God for a sign of victory. And what God does is he doesn't send him a chariot. He doesn't send him weapons. He gets a baby. A warrior baby. You want victory, God says? Here's a baby. And he picks up on that here. This is the baby to which that baby pointed. This is the warrior baby. This is the baby that will ultimately bring victory in the midst of a fallen, rebellious, sin-filled world. Then look at chapter 2, verse 6. He says that the the, the, the verse beginning in verse 5, we've got Herod talking to the Magi. And they told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, that's Micah 5, 2. And you, O Bethlehem, the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. The promise that this shepherd ruler, this shepherd king, will come from Bethlehem, he will be born in Bethlehem, is right here. Chapter 2, verse 15, there's the quotation of Hosea chapter 11, verse 1. The angel of the Lord came in a dream to Joseph. And one of the things we see in verse 15, he's commanded to stay in Egypt and remain there until the death of Herod. And then it says, this is to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. Now when we flip back to Hosea 11, there's a situation there that uh, Israel is called the Son of God. Israel is what he brings out of Egypt. The celebration of the Passover. But notice what he's doing here. All of the blessings of the covenant promises to Israel depended upon obedience. But Israel did not obey. Well, with the exception of one Israelite, a Jew named Jesus of Nazareth who perfectly obeyed all of the commands of God and kept all of the covenant promises. And just like Hosea 11.1 tells us, out of Egypt I will call my son Israel. Out of Egypt Israel is reborn through one Jewish man named Jesus. 
Look with me at, Jerem- at uh, chapter 2, verse 18. He, there's a quotation here of Jeremiah 31, 15. It says, this was fulfilled, this fu- was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. The people of God, Israel is in captivity. The northern kingdom of Israel is in Assyrian captivity. The southern kingdom is in Babylonian captivity. Rachel is here pictured as weeping for her children. But you know what Jeremiah 31 says? It goes on to give the promise of a new covenant. That there is coming a new covenant where the people of God will be reclaimed. And the one who fulfills that new covenant is one who will ultimately wipe away every tear, the Bible says. All of the promises of the new covenant are fulfilled in Jesus the Christ. And he will bring his people ultimately to a time where there is weeping no more. Tears are not the end of the story. The gospel is. In chapter 2, verse 23, it says... Talking about Joseph here and the the fact that he is supposed to return to Israel, verse uh, verse 22 says, But when he had heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in the place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there, and being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth. That What was spoken by the prophets, now notice there, it's not singular prophet, it's prophets. Prophets might be fulfilled, he shall be called a Nazarene. That's because this is not a particular prophetic promise that a particular prophet spoke that's applied here, but rather the totality of what the prophets pointed to. Nazareth was a nowhere town. John 1.45, it says that Philip says, we have found him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Nathaniel says, Nazareth? It actually says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? You know those kind of places. Nobody's educated there. Nobody's successful there. I would name a place and use it as an example. But if I do, one of you is probably from there. It's already happened to me a couple times. So I'm just going to let you think of that place you're thinking, I am glad I am not from there. That's Nazareth. Nothing good comes out of Nazareth. Why would it say that? Why does Jesus, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, why does he come out of Nazareth? Why was he born in an animal stable? Well, all of the prophets point to the humility of the coming king. We read Psalm 22. We read Isaiah 53. He will be the suffering servant. He will be mocked. He will be ridiculed. He will be looked down upon. Zechariah 11. We could go on and on. People will look to him and say, who does he think he is? We know his mother and father. And he, after all, is from Nazareth. But he is coming not on the authority of a human government, not on the authority of an ecclesial system, 
not on the authority of some sort of uh, lofty position. He comes according to the promise of God, and he comes as the suffering servant. Now, why is he doing this here? I mean, prophecies way back in Isaiah and Micah and Hosea and Jeremiah and Psalm 22 and Isaiah 53 and Zechariah 11. He's tying the birth of this child all the way back over and over and over and again. Yes, because every promise is yes and amen in him. Let me put it to you this way. There are no promises of God apart from Jesus. Zero. None. You don't come to the Bible and claim promises on your own. There are no promises apart from Jesus. Jesus is the fulfillment of Israel's story because he is the only covenant keeper. He's the only faithful Israelite. And by the grace of God, Gentiles are grafted into that story through faith in him because united by faith to him, we are considered a part of the covenant promises in him. See, this birth is tied back to everything that God's been doing. Everything. All the way back to that initial gospel promise of a seed born of woman who will crush the head of the serpent. Yeah, it looks like things are out of control. There's rogue leaders. There's power-hungry governments. There are babies being killed. It looks like it's chaos. But there is a sovereign God who can be trusted. Right? You know what looked like the most chaotic moment in the history of the world? The sinless Son of God, crucified as a rebel against God. He was put up there, Acts 2 says, by the hands of wicked men, doing a wicked deed. But it also says he was up there according to the foreordained plan of God. Which is it? Yes. Even the lashings of the wicked rebels fold over into the purposes of God. Oh, it appears to be chaos, and most people believe it is. But ultimately, it's not. Here's the the admonition. When things seem out of control, do not respond by trying to bend things to your will and trying to gain your own control over them. Know that they are not outside of God's control and just simply move toward obedience in His name. That is the only way of contentment. That is the only path of true joy. If you look at the chaos and that's all you see and you try to bend everything and conform it to your will, you are going to be discontent, unhappy, and a rebel against God because you are not trusting the Lord. You are trying to be Lord. There was a man who tried that. His name was Herod. 
If you try to bend everything to your will, the more power and control you get, the more you will feel out of control and the more discontent you will be. I wonder if you believe that. I wonder, maybe you say, well, yeah, but man, I know that if I had more money, I know that if I was in a position of more power, I could control things in a way, and I know that it would make me more happy. There's a lisp behind that voice, because that's the voice of the serpent. If you had complete control of the world, you would destroy it and destroy yourself in the process. You don't have the ability to be Lord. And when you try, you make your life worse, not better. Look at me, look with me at the madness of a sinful world. That's what it is. It's madness. As we said, this scene is a mess. We must not sanitize it. Jesus and his family are fleeing persecution. They're keeping his blood from being spattered on the ground according to the plan of God. They are in another land. Herod is the one with all the power. Herod is the one with all the authority. Herod is the one with all the seeming control to be able to manipulate things exactly like he wants it. But what is Herod like? Look at verse 16. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old and under, according to the time he had ascertained from the wise men. What is Herod like with all that power, with all that control, armies at his bidding? He can build buildings, and if he doesn't like it, say, tear it down and build a new one. What is he like? He's fearful. He's conspiratorial. He's deceitful, he's cruel, and he's full of anxiety. By the way, a man with this much power who's a king hears about the birth of a baby and he's terrified? And you think, well, why would he be? He's right. He's got every right to be terrified. The truth is, Herod has better theology than a lot of professing Christians. He knows the promise. And that promise is a promise that the king that will be born will make an end of kingdoms like his own. But he doesn't trust the promise. He trusts in himself, his authority, his power. I'll snuff it out. I'll maintain my power. I'll build my own kingdom. And he's fearful, anxious, worried, and cruel. Do you see it? Guess who's not fearful, anxious, worried, and cruel? Joseph. It's the difference between trusting the Lord and trying to be Lord. Herod was so wrapped up in himself and building his own name that Herod gave an order that when he died, every family under his rule was obligated to kill one family member so every family would grieve at the time of his death. Now, the order was not obeyed, but do you see it? He built this huge monument to be buried in. That's where it leads. When you live like that, when you die, 
people try to forget you. When you live as faithful people, it's like Hebrews. They, being dead, still speak. People remember you. Your life lives on. You see, but but we have to beat it in our heads because we think, I, you know, I don't want to be a megalomaniac like Herod. I don't want a giant kingdom. I just want to be a little megalomaniac. I just want to conform this little bitty life that I have to what I want. Then I'll be happy. I mean, not like Herod. The truth is you're just going in on the cheap. Right? It's no different. I cannot be happy because I don't get the promotion. Herod. He's just got a bigger seat. See, that's it. That's the madness of a sinful world. We think that if we could be Lord, it would all be better. Do you see what it says in verse 19? But when Herod died, short, simple, that's it. You're dead. It's over. You have no power. He being dead no longer speaks because the promises that he made himself that he lived based on have no authority. But if you live on the promises of God, that God works all history to bring about, then being dead, you still speak because the promises that you are wrapped into are eternal. Notice the contrast between Herod and Joseph. So which model will you follow? You can follow the Herod model in the name of Jesus, but it doesn't work. Jesus is not bartering lordship with you. He's Lord and he's king, and the birth of this child screams that there's a God who's sovereign over history. And the madness is to live in the world without acknowledging Him and obeying Him and trying to bring about what you want to yourself. That's the madness of a sinful world. Finally, I want you to think about this. The peace only found in Christ. Do you see the places that are mentioned? Bethlehem, Egypt, Galilee, Nazareth, Jerusalem. All these geographical places, it's like, it's like, uh, it's a travel itinerary. Okay, Jesus born here. Okay, get him over here. Get him over here. Get him over here. Get him over here. All of that fulfills what had always been said about the promised Messiah. Why is that going on? Why would there be such emphasis on geography in this way? Well, first of all, he's not the king just of a particular locale. He is to be the king of kings. But secondly, geography matters, hear me, because all theology is lived out geographically. You don't obey God in the abstract. You've got your feet in a particular place at a particular time. And obedience means that you deal with a particular people and you either obey God in the place where your feet are or you disobey God. If you sit around and fantasize about how you would obey God if you lived somewhere else, 
as someone else, then you're not obeying God. You can't obey God in the abstract. You can only obey God in Nazareth if your feet are there. Bethlehem if your feet are there. Jerusalem if your feet are there. Egypt if your feet are there. Lexington if your feet are there. The plan for the birth of this king is that on every square inch of this globe, there would be people who declare Jesus is Lord. All the way throughout the Bible, we see if you obey, you're blessed by God. But nobody obeys for very long. We also see in the Bible, no one does obey. No one is righteous. No, not one. Now you've got to deal with that. Some people deal with that by trying to be blessed by their own might and their own plan, but that doesn't work either. That only makes you more miserable. So what's the answer? In Luke, 14, Luke chapter 2, verse 14, it says about the birth of Christ, glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. He is only pleased with those who abandon their pursuit of lordship and their pursuit of control and trust him. Trust him as the promised Messiah, as the Savior. They cede control and say, Jesus is Lord, not me. There is peace on earth. Earth. Why? Because then you are infused and united to the one who obeyed the promises of God. The one who is truly blessed by God. And in him, you can be blessed by God. The Jew Jesus obeys all of the covenant promises. He is born of the Virgin Mary. And he is born to die. And he is crucified, not for his own sins, for he had none, but for the sins of those who would believe in him. And he is raised for their justification. He is the one who brings peace. It's only found in Him. That's why all of the Bible is about Him. All of life is about Him and those who are in Him. Do you see that? If you flip over to Jeremiah and you just ignored Jesus and said, this promise is blessing. I'm going to do it and be blessed. You're not. Because you're a guilty sinner. Any promise you see, the only way for you to be connected to that promise is through Jesus who paid the penalty for your sins, who was raised for your justification. That's it. And so you read the Bible and you think about your life. You say, it's all about Him. It's all about Him. How can I serve Him? How can I obey Him? Israel's story leads to Him. And apart from Him, Israel is not Israel. Not true Israel. Moses' story leads to Him. There's a greater than Moses. Abraham's story leads to Him. The gospel was being preached by Abraham beforehand, the New Testament tells us. David's story leads to him when he will sit on the throne of David forever. The temple leads to him. He is the presence of the glory of God. The altar leads to him. He is the sacrifice. He is the priest who offers himself. The priesthood leads to him. The the, the, the prophetic office leads to him. The kingly office leads to him. It's all about Him. And so the war is being fought based on those 
who believe in him and follow him and those who don't. And that's it. There's no third category. There's not the bad guys, the Jesus people, and the good moral people. If you're not in the Jesus people category, you're a rebel against the purposes of God. And if you are in the Jesus people category, it doesn't matter what anybody does. You can have peace now and forever. Recently, um, when we were in Israel, we were in Bethlehem, the place of the birth of Christ. Bethlehem is Israel-occupied territory. Almost everybody there are Arabs and almost everybody's Muslims. Uh, there are a lot of people who cross the border and do terrorist acts, and so there's security checkpoints. There are people who travel 30 minutes to go to work, and it takes them three hours because of the checkpoints they have to go through. People live a very difficult life. But within those Arab people in Bethlehem, full of Muslims, there are a handful of Christians. And right there in Bethlehem is Bethlehem Bible College. These evangelical Christians who love Christ, who are Arabs, have a very difficult life living in this Muslim context and living in occupied territories. And we met with them and we talked with them and we prayed with them. And the founder of Bethlehem Bible College was a man, and I'm talking to him. And he says, see that guy over there? Yeah. He said, you know what his name is? I said, no. He said, his name, he's an Arab from a Muslim family, and his name is Jihad. And he's a Christian. And he said, you ought to see him try to get through customs. (laughs) An Arab living in a Muslim area with a Muslim family named Jihad, who's a Christian and a faithful one. That is the warfare of Christmas. Jihad can be overcome by the power of the gospel. That's governmental jihads and our own personal jihads. Isn't it so rich with irony that there in the birthplace of Jesus, there is a man named Jihad who knows the peace of Christ? That is the power of Christmas. That's not sentimentality. It's getting into the muck of the real world and displaying the power of the gospel. I looked at that guy and I said, wow. I will never say Merry Christmas the same again. Let's pray.